are you doing to create your dream life or your best self? Why do we see some thrive through challenges while others struggle? Welcome to Effort, a podcast where I talk about the main Fs in my life that have helped me in creating my best self. Faith, family, forgiveness, food, fitness, and formula. Hi, my name is Amy Ledeen, and most would say that I've had my fair share of struggles, whether it was placing my baby for adoption at 18, facing my marriage-ending affair, or battling stage four cancer for almost seven years, it's safe to say that I've been through a lot. Join me as I take you through my story, my journeys, and share with you the tactical strategies every single week that will help you thrive and overcome anything you face. That's right, I'm gonna show you how to create a future self that you'll be proud of. So buckle up, get ready for the ride as I take you through my story and bring other guests on that have helped me along the way. Okay, so for some reason, I've had to record this one a couple times and then I thought, forget it. I really just need to go through and speak this as as true as I can to myself without feeling nervous and uh, making sure I get the full story here. And that is about my adoption, me placing a baby for adoption, that is. And this quote that a friend shared with me recently just really hit home and made me realize I do need to share it. And it was by Brene Brown. She says, shame hates it when we reach out and tell our story. It hates having words wrapped around it. It can't survive being shared. Shame loves secrecy. When we bury our story, the shame metastasizes. And that's so true because this is something that you know, even as a couple of years ago, my younger children did not know about me placing a baby for adoption. I had that much shame just around the entire situation. And so I want to share it here because while it has completely shaped my life, you know, and people might think, what does this have to do with creating your best self? It has everything to do with creating your best self because until we heal and forgive ourselves for previous things in our lives, we really cannot grow into our best self. And this was something that I really had to learn through therapy, through prayer, you know, all of those things. So we'll get right into it. And this might be a couple parts. So a little over a year ago, I decided to go into therapy again, and it was kind of triggered by a couple things. One, me going into remission after six years and, you know, expecting to be at this like euphoric, happy happy place. And instead, I started to have survivor's guilt. And that survivor's guilt came from two places. One, my affair and just not feeling worthy of living. And two, my teenage pregnancy and how much it shaped me. And so I reached out to a therapist that I found online, Nicola Para. You'll hear me talk a lot about her. The holistic psychologist is her name on Instagram. And for the first time in all of my therapy history, I had a huge questionnaire that she sent to me that was all about my system, meaning my family life. What was it like growing up in my home? What was it like for me? What was my sibling dynamic? Like everything was all related to my childhood. And it was really the first time in therapy history that instead of just trying to band-aid this immediate thing that we might be working on, it was about going back to my past to see how I got here. And it brought up a lot for me. So 
I'm going to rewind and it might jump all over the place, but taking you back to my childhood. So I kind of have two lives that I lived because while I grew up, I, I was born and raised in Idaho in a predominantly, you know, Mormon community. We had, I would say in my, my school, I only knew of two people that were not LDS, really small town. Um, you know, everybody knew everybody. You know, we had what was called like seminary, which is like, you know, religious study that was even in school. Like it would be a period at class that they could go do. Now, I was not old enough to be a part of those things. We moved then to Hawaii when I was 11 years old, which is an extremely shocking experience when you come from a small town of 700 people where it is predominantly Caucasian, predominantly Mormon, you know, slash LDS to, you know, being in a melting pot where I really had not seen outside of exchange students, anyone that was brown, let alone black, you know, it was just, it was just a complete shock. So, and, and that has some to do with my shaping here, but I just want to give you a little bit of context. So growing up, um, you know, in an LDS home, like we, you knew that, you know, you don't have sex before marriage and all of those things. And, um, you know, that just, and, and I think that most, you know, I mean, a lot of us, as we grow up, we have these values that we just, you know, kind of establish really based on modeling. That's the thing that most of us don't realize is that behaviors are caught, not taught. So while I was taught a lot of, you know, quote unquote, right from wrong, it's, it's a lot of what we're modeling and seeing. So, um, you know, and I always try to preface this by saying the best thing you can say to yourself through the healing process is that your parents did the best they could with what they know how. And I love my parents dearly. Like I, I, you know, always hesitate to say things because I want, you know, people to know that we're in a good place. I'm in a really good place. Like I've had great conversations with my mom about this. And while sometimes it's hard to share, I still need to share my truth to the story so that you know where I'm coming from. And there might be someone here that's listening. I'm I'm a big advocate for birth moms because I feel like there's so much shame around the birth mom that while they do this amazing selfless act of placing the baby for adoption, um, the aftermath can be really, really hard if you don't get the therapy. So I grew up in what I thought was a pretty, you know, uh, normal home. Of course, now as an adult, I realized that, you know, and this is this word might even trigger people. My parents were immature. And I'll say this knowing that, hey, I'm an immature parent too. This is something I've been working on. And about, you know, maybe four years ago, Eric and I had this midlife crisis slash awakening where we realized that we were turning into our parents in that we didn't have the hard conversations with our kids. And that was just modeled from what we had seen so much of growing up. So while I knew right from wrong and I knew, you know, I remember my mom having the sex talk with me, I never really was taught about relationships and what love would feel like and what it should be like. So my first real boyfriend in high school, um, you know, I fell, I fell deep. It was, you know, looking back, definitely a toxic, you know, emotionally immature relationship. And um, I started having sex at, you know, I think I was 15 turning 16. And, um, you know, just the one relationship and I was living, you know, a double life. I was going to church every Sunday and, 
you know, going to youth group every week and saying the right things and, you know, getting up and bearing my testimony and all of these things, right? While I was actually, you know, sleeping with him and and just looking for that love. Like I can't even tell you enough about how important it is as parents for us, one, just to express unconditional love all the time with our children, but also have the conversations about what love should feel like and and what it should be like because you know I I did have a a history of, of of sexual abuse as a child and so I definitely now know through therapy that I was looking for love I was looking for it in the wrong way and I was looking for it in the only way that I knew and so we were sexually active now keep in mind I had everything going for me at this point. So through, you know, high school, I was a pretty much a straight A student. You know, I had one B, I think, when I graduated. And um, my my goal was to go to Brigham Young University. And um, I just, I had everything going for me. I was student body president. So I was a senior in high school, grade 12. And student body president, I was, you know, involved in so many things. I'd gotten awards from the president and everything. And the summer before my senior year, I had my wisdom teeth taken out. Now, I can't remember the details around this. I can't remember if it was because I was maybe having irregular periods or if I was sneaking it, but I was on birth control. And I went into this wisdom teeth surgery and was put on some antibiotics prior to the surgery to make sure I didn't have an infection. I didn't know anything and come to find out later, we found out that that's, you know, when you, it can cancel out your birth control. And I ended up pregnant, but not thinking anything of it. So like not even thinking that that was a possibility. So my mom was actually gone that summer for about a month um, to the mainland. We lived in Hawaii and I started getting sick morning sickness, not knowing it was morning sickness. I thought it was the flu. I even contacted my mom because this was post wisdom teeth surgery. And I'm like, I just can't stop throwing up. And she's like, it's got to be, you know, probably the pain medication they've given you. So I stopped taking that and I still was throwing up. So I finally started putting two and two together and I took a test and it came back positive. I had one friend that I had shared it with at the time. She actually was also a member of our church and we were, you know, good friends. And at that point, my shame and just guilt were, I mean, I just, you always go to the worst case scenario. I really thought that my parents would be disowning me, kicking me out, you know, whatever, you name it. So I kept it a secret for a few months. Now, keep in mind, and back then this was crazy, and I'm so thankful for Sarah, you know, Sarah, if you're listening to this, saving me during that part. And that was that I would get in her truck on the way to school every morning because, you know, I was going to school senior in high school, and we would bring a roll of paper towels, we would bring a bundle of plastic bags, and she would, you know, just get used to pulling over the side of the road, oh, and a gallon of water. And I would pull, have her pull over, throw up, rinse out my mouth with the water, throw the bag in the back of the, of her truck, you know, that I threw up in. And, um, cause sometimes we wouldn't even make it to pull over and the paper towels just to kind of wipe myself up. And this just became a little bit of a system just to continue to hide it. And I, you know, I cannot, you know, stress enough how, you know, shame and just that secrecy just eats at you. 
And so I knew that it was, you know, inevitable. I was going to have to tell my parents, but didn't know how. And so finally for accountability, I told my friend Sarah that I was going to be telling them that night. I wanted her on standby. Remember, we didn't have cell phones back then, but I wanted her on standby just in case I was kicked out or, you know, again, thinking the worst case scenario. So I sat down with, I told my mom, my mom came up to my room and I said that, you know, I had something to tell her and that it was really bad. And, uh, she didn't guess it at first. And then jokingly, she was like, what, you're, you're pregnant. And I'm like, yes. And she's like, no, really? And I'm like, yes. And she, um, you know, my mom handled it really well. I'm, I mean, I, I now being a parent, I, I can't imagine. And I, and I also think that, you know, as parents now, I realize like a lot of times when we are disciplined as, as kids, it's just, they want to protect us. They don't want us to go through any pain or anything that's going to hurt us. And, you know, my mom, she just, she stopped and kind of sighed and, um, went downstairs and said, I'll tell your dad, you know, I'll tell him first so that, cause I was just too afraid. I was like, I can't, I just can't tell him. And then that night, you know, we, had a very, I mean, of course, now that I'm older, you know, I can see how where my parents just didn't know how to handle it. And we had a very short conversation. And my mom had booked for us to go meet with um, LDS Family Services, which now I will just say, you know, an update is that they no longer have this um, adoption agency. And I think for good reason. And, but at the time, that was the first step was my mom was like, well, let's, let's go to LDS Family Services and see what your options are. Now, keep in mind, my, you know, no one in my school knew what was going on yet. And being student body president, which was such a big achievement for me at that time, you know, growing up in Hawaii where it's not common that you're going to see a Caucasian woman, you know, be the the student body president. And I, I really took a lot of pride in that. Well, the statistics in Hawaii had just come out that they had one of the highest teenage pregnancy rates. And, you know, that was, you know, really eating at me because I knew that it was inevitable that I was going to lose my, you know, position because I knew that I wasn't being a great role model for my peers. But, that was kind of in the on the back burner just with us initially telling my parents and then of course you know in um LDS you know church they're very involved as well and so i went and i had to sit down with my bishop which is like a pastor you know if you're not familiar with the LDS church it's similar to having like the head of the church sit down with us now in in LDS culture if you're unable or unwilling to get married, then it's highly encouraged. I don't want to say you have to, but I will get into that a little bit. You you really need to place that baby for adoption. And, and this stems from a lot of the beliefs in being married and sealed forever to your family. And if you're not married, then you don't have those special um, things. I don't even know the right word for it. And so it's, it's, and it's heavily ingrained in you. So I really want to preface this by saying that this was my truth. This was my truth. I believed all of this. And so we originally, we, you know, initially we're going to get married. Now keep in mind, I'm, I'm 17 turning 18. I would have been 18 by the time, you know, Taylor was born. But I, you know, so that was the initial thing that we were going to do. And we, you know, his parents, they were also LDS and 
our parents talked and we were like, all right, well, this is just the next step. We're just going to get married. And we started to plan to, you know, basically have a little small, like we'll elope. And uh, cause by this point I would be like six months pregnant. And then I got a call from my oldest brother. And while he had no idea that he, you know, the power he would have with his words, they had a lot of power. And he, he said, wow, I can't believe it. In two weeks from now, you're going to be a married woman. And it hit me. I'm like, I'm going to be married. I'm, I'm not even mature enough to be taking care of this child, let alone like be in a, in a serious relationship. Because I already knew at this point, especially like, you know, getting pregnant really grows you up quickly. You have no choice. And that I saw that there were a lot of things in our relationship that just were not stable. They were completely from insecure places. I was an extremely insecure person that feared abandonment, feared rejection, um, to the point that I would, you know, sacrifice my own, you know, probably core values for love. And so when he said it, it really hit me. I decided to, you know, I talked to my mom and, and my parents, you know, my mom was very supportive. I will say my mom had said from the get go that whatever you want to do, we will fully support. If you want to keep this baby, we will help you raise this baby. You know, I can, we can, we can do that. And if you want to place this baby, you know, we will support that too. So I don't want to loop my mom or lump my mom into some of the LDS beliefs there because my mom was really trying to show me that support and, and love. But again, when you have these other truths coming at you, you really don't feel like you have a choice. Now, let me just say this clearly, and I'll say this many times. I have no regrets with my adoption and placing Taylor for adoption, which by the way, that is not her real name. That's the name that we gave her and just for her own privacy. And and you'll see as my story unfolds, I want to keep it there. So when you have these truths or all that you know kind of coming at you, you know, you 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 have a lot of battles within. So we did come to the conclusion that we were going to place the baby for adoption. I knew that we both needed to be on the same page. And so we went over to LDS Family Services, and at six months, we chose a couple. Now, back in that day, and it has changed, I know that it has changed a lot over the years, this was a closed adoption. And I just like to say this so that people kind of understand the difference. So closed adoptions, we, while we did meet, I met the adoptive couple at the hospital that was outside of some, I got a letter on the anniversary, like her birthday, the first year, I got quite a few letters from them. And then when she was, I believe, three, um, that all stopped. So I really didn't have a lot of, you know, anything really moving forward. And then I didn't really have any of that like therapy or talking about it. It was a thing that I really just, I buried. But rewinding back, so at six months, we went through a bunch of profiles and we chose a couple. Now, keep in mind, at this point, I was going through what they called the repentance process in the LDS church. So I was, I was put on a probation for my actions. And, and through that, and I share this with you because this became a big part of probably my, you know, bitterness towards religion. And I do see that there's a big, huge difference between, you know, being religious and being spiritual. I was very religious. So I was, you know, put on probation and as an LDS member at that time, 
I was told that I would no longer, you know, while I was going through this probationary period, I would not have, you know, the Holy Spirit there to help guide me, you know, basically shaming me into thinking that I don't have those keys or gifts with me. And I say this just because there were a few pleading moments towards the end of this adoption where I had a lot of bitterness. I had a lot of anger towards the truths that were taught to me when all along, all of us, anyone listening right now, you have that gift. If you want to get on your knees right now and pray to God, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. You have that power to always tap in. And that's such an important thing because religious shame actually makes us fall away. We don't then feel worthy enough to even go to God. And coupled that with, if as a parent, you've not really shown this unconditional love that like no matter what your children do, no matter how they behave, if we don't show that, then that is the way we deem God. And I know that Eric and I will talk a lot about this because we had a a moment a few years ago where we realized, oh my gosh, we've been seeing God completely in a, in the wrong light. And it was all because, you know, we really kind of grew up just in these conditioned love patterns. And again, I don't judge my parents. You have to remember they did the best they could with what they knew how. It's always been modeled. And then if you do come up in probably a more restrict, restrictive or strict religious upbringing, there is a lot of that conditioned love. It's all about how you behave and just not who you are. So for me, um, at that point, you know, we had, we chose the couple. And so for the next three months, we had conversations, you know, via old fashioned letters to each other to kind of get to know them. Now I ended up going into labor, not unexpectedly, but about, I think a week before my due date. And keep in mind, they were from the mainland. So they were going to have to travel to Hawaii. And back then with closed adoptions, you did have one opportunity to, to meet the couple. And we had planned to do it before I went into the hospital, just because, you know, you're going to be more emotional in the hospital and, you know, your immature self might not like, you know, I mean, I was 18. I might not like the way they look or the way that they dress. And you don't want that to be the reason you don't end up signing the papers. But I ended up going into labor a little early. And, you know, another amazing thing was, you know, at the hospital that I was at in Hawaii, our anesthesiologist happened to be on vacation. And there was an anesthesiologist that was, a he was just there vacationing, but he was working, you know, the time that he was there. And what a crazy, you know, God moment for us was this guy, this doctor actually knew my mom's best friend. And because of this guy, I was able to get an epidural because they were not doing epidurals at this hospital. They would do like a block, but they wouldn't do epidurals. And I was, you know, 18, probably dramatic in that I didn't know how to handle the pain, just even emotionally. And this guardian angel came in and I was able to get an epidural and, you know, just at least not have to have that trauma. Because if there's one thing about being a birth mom is, you know, when you leave that hospital, you have all the scars and all the battle wounds of having a baby, but you don't have the baby. And I know he wanted me to be as comfortable as possible because they all knew that I was placing this baby for adoption. Now, since they were not there yet, they were panicking to get to Hawaii. I, you know, there was no way I was not going to, I couldn't hold off having the baby. My, they broke my water and 
I ended up having her. And then we had the dilemma of, do you want to spend time with her? Because you know, you're placing her for adoption. And now that they're not here yet, it was going to take probably like 48 hours. And you know, nowadays you're, you, you have a baby, you're out. Like they don't even keep you at the hospital really 24 hours, especially if you're not having a C-section. And, um, but of course they knew my situation and I refused. I wasn't going to leave the hospital without them already being there with her. In fact, I kind of had this obsession with, I just didn't want her to be alone, even though I knew she would know no different. There was something about, I wanted them to have her the moment that I didn't, you know, have her with me. So we went back and forth. You know, my parents asked me if I would be okay with you know, spending that time with her. And I remember saying that I would much rather go through several extra years of therapy due to it being so hard because I had more time with her versus a life of regret. So I spent two days with her, dressing her, you know, holding her and just, you know, soaking up that time with her. And then I was able to meet Matt and Michelle face to face and really not, I mean, at that point, I didn't really have a lot of questions for them. I think I was, my biggest question, again, I had this obsession with, I said, listen, when I leave the hospital, while I do not want to hand her over to you because that is just too much for me to bear, I want you to be with her. I don't want her to be alone in the nursery. So while I don't want to see this and be a part of it, when I leave here, I want to know that she is in your arms and that she is taken care of by you because this was just, again, something that I'd had a lot of dreams about and I was just really worried about. Now, prior to signing the papers, keep in mind this was through a church social worker system, you know, their their own agency. So you have to place to an LDS couple, like it's completely through there. I was still on this quote unquote probation and I was struggling to get the courage, you know, to sign these papers. And I was, I remember having a panicked moment and I, I called my social worker and said, I, I, you know, again, this was my truth was that I didn't have the capability to tap into God, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to, you know, call it. I, was told this was taken away from me because of my sins. I needed to be repenting for 12 months and that I didn't have that gift. And I was panicked because this was so much a part of my truth that I felt like, how am I going to do this? I need God. I need God here with me because without God's strength, I don't think I can give this baby up. And so she called my, my bishop and called even the, the stake president and they came and they prayed over me and basically at that moment, you know, told me we're, we're going to give you this, this gift back right now. Now, fast forward to my life now and where I am with religion versus spirituality. I can't say this enough because if there is someone thinking about placing right now, or maybe you've been in this situation, no one can take that away from you. I'm so sad that in those times, All those times during my pregnancy, I felt so alone and I felt like I was unworthy to turn to God because of my sins. This is so wrong. I cannot tell you how wrong it is. And I can't tell you how much it affected my relationship with God moving forward because I truly, that was my truth, was that when I'm not acting in accordance to 
you know, say the values that we've been taught, then I'm unable to tap into or even ask for help because I'm undeserving and I'm unworthy. So while I did get that blessing over me and I was able to pray to God, and I I truly believe it is the only way at that point for me to get through it was having that with me because I didn't have the strength myself, guys. Like I did not have the strength at 18, but I was able to sign those papers and see a bigger picture and a bigger purpose in knowing that this is what was best for Taylor and best for me because I was in no way, shape or form mature enough to take on a baby. Now it's extremely different for the man versus woman in these types of situations. For me, it was like wearing the scarlet letter. Every single person knew I was pregnant because you get a belly. So prior to leading up to this adoption, you know, we had, I had a couple friends. I had a friend actually in our church that ended up pregnant around the same time as me. And she decided to keep her baby and, you know, was fully supported by her family. And I, I, I loved seeing that support around her because she was really given this, you know, unconditional love, regardless of what, you know, the church was encouraging, you know, her parents were like, you got to do what, you know, is best for you. And, you know, my parents did show a lot of that for me, you know, with me, but there was still a lot of pressure around the situation. You know, people constantly asking my parents, you know, what I was going to be doing. Some people judging that I was placing, you know, in, in Hawaii, they have a saying called Hanai. When you Hanai a baby, you basically bring the baby into your fold, you know, like a lot of grandparents raise the children there. And so my mom got a lot of heavy judgment around why, why aren't you just taking on this baby? You know, not even really seeing that this had to be ultimately my choice. I know it probably could have been easy. My mom had lots of um, foster kids in the future years, which I truly believe was just unconscious guilt for the the adoption. But she, you know, was always like that. So there was a lot of um, judgment around that. In addition to that, so keep in mind, I was doing what I thought was the obedient thing, right? I was placing the baby. So during the last few months of my pregnancy, they put me in a separate class. So I wasn't even allowed to go with the youth anymore. You know, and I get it, you know, here I am pregnant. I can't really be around like my peers, but I also wasn't put in the adult class. So I had a separate class where I needed to go on Sunday and I was taught. So if that doesn't tell you unconsciously like to shame yourself, I don't know what does. Because if anything, any moment that I started to get confidence in, hey, I'm doing the right thing, I was knocked back down into believing like you are, I mean, you should be by yourself. No one should see you. In fact, in the, um, one of the things that LDS Family Services did, and, and, and I know that they saw it as probably a good thing at the time, but I can't tell you how much shame I've met so many women that have placed that this is where their shame came from. So they would allow you to, if you got pregnant, they would send you to live with another family, like in another area so that no one where you lived before even knew about your adoption. And, you know, it would be framed with, listen, this is a way for you to move on with your life, not realizing like, 
hello, you got to deal with this shit. You need to really go through the, the forgiving of yourself, you know, process and how, oh my gosh, if you didn't shame yourself before, you certainly are shaming yourself now. I luckily did not have parents that encouraged that. And I stayed and I faced, you know, everything in my community, but I did meet girls over the years that the moment they found out they were pregnant, their parents shipped them away and they, you know, moved away. I did have one moment and, you know, I know that my dad has talked to my mom about this moment and I don't even, I don't, I don't get upset about it now. I've gone through a lot of, you know, therapy for this, but I remember being about eight months pregnant and my dad worked for Costco. He was the manager there down at Costco and I was driving down to see him. And when I got to Costco, he came out to meet me in the parking lot. And I remember having this flood of shame. I knew in that moment that my dad was embarrassed of my pregnancy and embarrassed of the situation. Now, as an adult, I know if I had this conversation with my dad, my dad would probably say no. He was probably just, you know, shaming himself. And, but, you know, this is where the conversations with our children and the conversations with, you know, we need to have the hard conversations. Have my dad just said to me, Amy, I just feel so bad myself. Like, it's not about you. I'm proud of you. I love you. You know, all of that, that would fix a lot of that. And I think, you know, you're going to see as I've created my, my best self, my future self, this is a lot of the things that I have had to change about myself and, and learn for myself. And that is always showing this unconditional love to our children because we don't realize the power you know, negative power it has on our emotions, because that was a pivotal moment for me where even if I wasn't embarrassed of myself at that time, it made me realize I better be embarrassed of myself because if my parents don't really want to be out with me and seen with me pregnant, then I should be hiding myself. Now, I also had, so in the, in the Mormon LDS, you know, church, we have early morning seminary. So for the three years prior to that in high school, keep in mind, like we lived 45 minutes away from our public school. So for the three years prior to me getting pregnant, I did what was called early morning seminary. I got up in the morning at like five in the morning and we went over to a lady's house and we did Bible study that fill in the blank type stuff. And I'd done that for three years. Well, when I got pregnant, they, of course, said, we don't want you going anymore. We feel like it just won't set the right example for the kids. You know, you can't be there with them as a distraction being pregnant. So I did home seminary. Now, let me tell you, home seminary is a lot of busy work. It's a lot of like fill in the blank and not a fun way to study, you know, the Bible. But I did it because I really, really wanted to get my four-year certificate. Remember, this was my truth. I felt like this was super important to me. And I ultimately wanted to go to BYU. BYU was like, you know, for any LDS Mormon person at that time, like that is the school to go to. And that was my dream. So I did the home seminary. So fast forward, I place Taylor for adoption. Now that day was a blur. I remember getting in the wheelchair and leaving the hospital and just having nothing, like nothing to show for it. We didn't talk on the way home. Um, I got home and I remember just walking into my bedroom, falling down on my bed and not moving until the next day. I didn't know if I could handle the pain. Like I, I kept thinking, I, have I made a mistake? Do I, I you know, my selfish self, 
wanted to call the social worker and be like, I've changed my mind. Like, I can't do this. This is just too hard for me. You know, but I, I, I pushed through and, uh, really fought those feelings because I knew that they were my feelings. Just, I was hurting. Unfortunately, though, what I ended up doing is I just kind of stuffed them down. I didn't get into therapy. I didn't get into counseling. So if you're someone listening to this, maybe you have a child that is, is pregnant, or maybe you found me and your child has already had a baby. Please, please, please get them into some counseling, get them into therapy. They need to work through this because this was something I didn't do. And I truly believe it's why it showed up later. It's why later when I had my affair, I had massive, massive shame to the point that, you know, some people even say that this is where my cancer came from, manifesting from trauma. It's not a surprise in the cancer community these days that a lot of times that is where it manifests from is this trauma, shame, and it's just pent up inside you. So we didn't talk about it a lot. Now, this was in March of that year. I had resigned from student body council, so I was no longer the student body president, but my principal, who was amazing, and I had a student activity advisor, I believe. Her name is Angela Brandt. I have to say her name because she was an angel during this time for me. Mrs. Brandt was so protective of me during my pregnancy. You know, keep in mind, I did go to school and I had a belly to show and well, people know me now as an adult and they're like, you're so amazing. You're so awesome. I'm like, I want you to go back to the stigma that we put around. You know, again, it comes back to judging people and we don't know their story, but me being 17 slash 18, you know, and you seeing me with a belly, you can't tell me that you wouldn't be judging me as one of my peers. And I had a lot of that. I, you know, it was hard for me to hold my head high when I knew so many people around me were looking at me like calling me a slut, you know, whatever you want, whatever names you want to call it. And, but Mrs. Brandt was this angel that one, she worked with the school board to allow me to come into her class. And I was able to do my work in there for those last couple months. So I stayed with her most of the time, finished my school, you know, graduated with honors, you know, I had a great group of girlfriends that were fully supportive while I did never talk about it with them. And, you know, going through therapy later in life, I realized again, I just stuffed it. Like after I had Taylor, I went right into work school mode and I never spoke of it really again. And then as we were getting closer to graduation, I received a letter from BYU and they told me that due to them feeling I would have psychological problems, I was not going to be able to go to BYU. I was not getting accepted. This was devastating for me because this was my dream. And you have to remember that the whole reason, now again, I would, I have no regrets with the adoption, but the reason I placed through the church and through this organization was I was told this was like the, the way to make things right and the way to be forgiven and the way to have eternal life. And so for me to be denied by a church university was a massive blow. Like, I'm not going to lie. It was a huge, huge blow to me. I didn't understand what was going on. I'm like, I did everything you said. You told me to place this baby for adoption. Now I'm not getting in. Let's keep in mind too, my ex-boyfriend did get accepted. So he was going to BYU. And here I was the person that I, I felt like I'd sacrificed a lot. Well, then fast forward the next Sunday at church, they're getting ready to do this seminary graduation. 
And with the seminary graduation, you know, they came up to me, you know, my bishop came up to me at the time and said, hey, I want to have a talk with you. We're not going to let you walk the graduation. We just feel like, you know, it's just sending the wrong message to the kids that you, you know, like you got away with something and you get to graduate. And I was stunned. I, I was, I don't even think I could say anything. I know my mom went into his office and gave him a, 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 a few things and it was, you know, not nice things in that. How can you do this? How can you do this to her after all of this? Like she's, she's going to fall away. And, you know, I think because it was so ingrained in me, I still was thinking I needed to be better, do better. You know, I got to pray harder, like all these things, because I just didn't understand the message that I was, you know, getting. And so I think that's why from that point, I really, I didn't talk about it much. I didn't want to um, speak about it because at that point I felt like, while well, yes, placing Taylor for adoption was the best gift I gave Matt and Michelle. And it really gave me an opportunity to grow. I could have never raised a child at that point. It really was a, a turning point for me in the way I saw religion, the way I saw God. I was, I was probably really just upset with God because I felt like, wow, I was quote unquote obedient here. And now things are just not turning out the way I had thought they would. Okay, so this is where I want to wrap up part one. This is from, you know, point of when I got pregnant to right after I'd say, you know, that summer of placing Taylor for adoption. And the reason why I want to stop this one here is one, to not make this too long, but two, moving into the next chapter of my life, you know, getting married really young after that, what that did to me in terms of my just emotional immaturity and moving forward from there with my shame and guilt and how I ended up here talking to you about it on this podcast. And if you're still wondering how the heck my adoption or anything related to it has to do with you creating your best self, it's everything. I cannot tell you the amount of messages I have gotten where people have now shared with me shameful things from their past that they just can't get over. You will sabotage yourself you will not reach your biggest dreams and goals if you don't shed this shame and this guilt. So this is why I'm sharing this story. And as much as sometimes it is hard for me, I am always reminded by something that Nicola Perra said to me last year, Amy, by you not sharing it, you are still shaming yourself in the past. You are saying that you're not a changed person by not sharing it. And I know I have changed. I know I have created a better self. So this is why I share. Okay, guys, another episode in the books. And I cannot thank you enough for all of you that have been tuning in. This has been a whirlwind of fun and I'm really, really enjoying it. So I'm going to be bringing regularly scheduled podcast episodes every Tuesday and Friday, along with some bonus ones with my husband, with friends. I'm just really, really excited about it. My one ask, and it's a big ask, is for you to screenshot this or share the link with anyone that you think would benefit from having this in their life. With so many podcasts out there, it's it's hard to be seen and known. So I'm hoping that with the help of you, the help of my community, that more people will continue to see effort.